you may be seated. Our Old Testament reading this morning is found in the book of Genesis, chapter 50. Coming to the very end of the book of Genesis. And then our New Testament reading is found in Philippians 1, 12 through 18. And of course, that will be our our text for this morning. So Philippians 1, we'll turn there. And, and keep your finger there as we read from, uh, from uh, Genesis chapter 50, beginning with verse 15. <clears throat> it's really bringing to a conclusion the account of, of Joseph. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said... It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And then our New Testament reading, which comes from Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 12 through verse 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the reading and the hearing of your word. You have ordained that to be a means of grace, a sufficient word and revelation from you, that the scriptures contain your whole counsel. The scriptures are what we believe. So Lord, we pray as we hear these words, you would illumine them to our hearts and our minds, 
that you would plant them in us, that, that they would bear fruit in our living. And now, Lord, we come to the exposition of your word. And I pray as your servant, one who is called and set apart for this ministry of the gospel, that you would provide what I lack, which is the unction and the power of the Holy Spirit in the proclamation of your gospel, that you would grant that unction, that your name would be glorified and your people here edified and the preaching of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I would remind <clears throat> those who are here and then those who are here for the first time under my preaching that, that I have begun a sermon series on the Sundays that I'm going to be here in Paul's letter uh, to the Philippians. Um, and I want to give the occasion again for what gave rise to this letter and the text that we have before us. I want to remind you that the Apostle Paul is imprisoned. Following his third missionary journey, he was arrested, as had been prophesied by the prophet, what happened to him if he made his way to Jerusalem. He was arrested as a Roman citizen. He appealed to Caesar and therefore made his way by voyage, very arduous journey, to Rome and was there imprisoned, waiting trial before Nero. The Philippians, on the other hand, were unaware of what had happened to Paul and of his imprisonment. And the Philippians, as I've told you already, um, the relationship between Paul and the church at Philippi is perhaps the warmest, it's the most supportive church of any of the churches that he planted. That becomes clear in this letter, and you can see the warmth of that relationship that's in the letter that Paul has written. They didn't know of his predicament. And as soon as they learned about it, they immediately sprang to action. They collected an offering. They sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, with the offering. They said to Epaphroditus, you stay and you minister to Paul as long as you're needed there. And so this letter that we have is really a letter of thanksgiving where Paul sits down and thanks the Philippians for what's happened uh, and for, for, for their provision for him with the gift and also with Epaphroditus. But something else we see as we come to our text is that Paul sees his circumstances far different than the Philippians see them. The Philippians see Paul, their beloved pastor, the one who brought the gospel to them, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, one they love, one that they have supported in his ministry, they see him in this terrible situation of being imprisoned, awaiting trial before Nero. They don't know what's going to happen to him, but also with the assumption if Paul is imprisoned, then he's unable to carry out his ministry. And one of the things that Paul wants to tell them in this letter, other than thank you for your provision for me, is this. Things aren't as you think they are. In fact, what's happened to me has served to advance the ministry of the gospel. I would remind you of the circumstances. This is not like Paul and Silas in the dungeon in Philippi when they were arrested many years, uh, some, some years before. 
This is instead a different kind of situation. He is appealed to Nero, uh, to, to, to Nero as a Roman citizen. He is under house arrest, which means he's responsible to pay the rent on the house that he's in. The gift from Epaphroditus will certainly help in that as well. But evidently, he has unlimited visitors. He's restricted. He can't leave the house, but people can come and visit him. And to make sure he doesn't leave the house, the imperial guard are are stationed there, and he's chained to these guards, and one will work one shift, and then he'll leave, and another will work another shift to ensure that Paul, who's in the system because of his uh, appeal that he has made, does not leave this house. But people are coming in to visit him. And what does Paul do? He preaches. And when Paul preaches the gospel, they hear the gospel. Some are being converted. And not only are some being converted, but these guards that are chained to him are captive audiences. Now, he's the captive, but when they're chained to him, they can't go anywhere either. either and they're stationed there and they're coming under the hearing of the gospel. And what seems clear as you read the text, some of these guards themselves evidently were converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul sees, and this is what gives rise to the text that we have in front of us. Look at how he says it in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It served to advance the gospel not to restrict the gospel. Now, we also think about, as we think about this text in this kind of situation like this, it's why I read the passage from, from Genesis chapter 50. You'll, re- you'll remember what happened in Genesis chapter 50. And prior to that, much earlier than that, when out of, out of jealousy, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. And then we have the whole story of Joseph. I'm not going to go through that story. You'll remember what happened. You have the whole story of Joseph, how he rose to great power in, in, uh, because of his wisdom, because of the visions that he had. He rose to great power in, uh, in, in Egypt that was there. And then later, of course, as the brothers uh, come because of the famine that occurred, and, and Joseph is there. As you come to that ending passage that we have in, in Genesis, Genesis chapter 15, as he sums up everything, the brothers worry now that he's going to turn against them because his father has died, their father has died. And so they, they ask for his forgiveness. But remember that statement he made, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God meant for good to save multitudes. God meant for good to carry out his promises to Abraham. Because God had promised to bless Abraham. The famine came upon Joseph's family. They had to flee to Egypt in order to be preserved, in order to be called out of Egypt as God's son. And redemptive history goes forward. What we see is this, is Satan is at work trying to impede God's purposes and plans. Whether it be in the Old Testament with the selling of Joseph into slavery, Or in the New Testament, in this situation, with the Apostle Paul, with his arrest. What is Satan thinking? Satan is thinking if Paul's in prison, then he's not going to be able to preach. And yet we see a sovereign God who is bigger than and broader than all of that. Indeed, Paul sees what's happened to him as an advancement to the gospel. There's an important lesson to learn here, too, about the Apostle Paul. What's important to him? 
What's important to him is not there's a chain around my wrist. What's important to him is not what's going to happen when I have my hearing with Nero. Now, what's important to him is what has what's happened to me? How has that impacted the ministry of the gospel? Brothers and sisters, what's important to you in your life? Is it the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? The circumstances that you find yourself in? It's so easy for us to be concerned and overwhelmed with our circumstances instead of stepping back and looking and saying, what is God doing and how is the gospel being served for what he's doing in me, even if it entails my suffering? Even if it entails my suffering. We think of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan now, and we don't know how many are there. We, we don't know for sure um, exactly what's going to happen, but we know that they are in imminent danger. We shouldn't simply be praying that they be rescued. We should be praying that God will use that will advance the gospel in Afghanistan. It's oftentimes in the midst of persecution that God's spirit blows like a wind and there is a harvest of souls in conversion. Yes, we're concerned for our brothers and sisters in Christ. The same thing here now. It seems like in our own culture, our voices are being canceled or silenced. Those who stand for the whole counsel of God. A time of persecution, not nearly as severe as our brothers and sisters are experiencing in Afghanistan and maybe spreading over into Pakistan and other countries as well. Not nearly the same, and yet it's here. Do we complain about this? Or do we step back and say, Lord, how are you going to advance the gospel? How are you going to advance the gospel? You see, it's often when faith is tested that the unbelievers see its power. In terms of the one who's tested and how God preserves them and holds them up and strengthens their faith. I have a friend that was a friend of Pete's when, he, when Pete was in college, Tom Sullivan. He's a PCA minister. He's retired now. He actually attends most of the time the OPC church where, where I attend once a blue moon when I get to stay at home. But the church where my, my wife and my son are members in, in Chilhowee, Virginia. And, uh, and his wife um, has had MS for many, many years, decades, and aggravated symptoms with it. Um, and I just got word this week that, that, that she's in very grave condition. Um, and hospice is being called in to help minister to her. I remember one time talking to him because they had had, had they'd suffered through this for many years. He continued to faithfully minister, um, and 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 I asked him, you know, a question. How, you know, how do you handle all of this? And he said, sometimes I have a pity party. <laughs> he says, and he said one time he said I was just saying, why is all this happening to us? They had lost uh, both of them had lost parents in a short period of time. He had a brother who's a minister that uh, uh, had fallen into deep sin. He he was just and then and then hopes uh, illness, and he said it was just. He said I didn't hear a voice or anything, but he said it was just like God said to me, "It's for your sanctification, dummy. 
That's just the way he put it to me. It's, it's for your sanctification. And he said, Lacey, there are things that we would have never known about trusting in Christ had we not gone through this suffering. Um, he's a dear, godly man. I went to a few time of a, a man in his congregation that died, and one of the ladies from our church was there with me. I looked at her and I said, well, I grew up, I want to be a minister just like him. He's not that much older than me, but I said, I want to be a minister just like him. Our, our sufferings, God uses them to sanctify us. Our sufferings are for a testimony. When Paul is imprisoned and yet seizes the opportunity to preach the gospel to people who are coming in the door, you see, that has an impact that's what he's telling us about in this particular text. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard, that is, the guards who come in and as they spread the word, because they're seeing the power of God at work in this imprisoned man who's preaching the gospel even in the midst of his chains. That he is imprisoned for Christ. And look at the second reason, verse 14, and most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much bolder to speak the word without fear. So if the devil put him in jail, thinking, well, that'll keep him from preaching, and yet he's preaching fearlessly from jail, and others who are not in jail realize, if he can do it in jail, we can do it in the streets, you see. It's emboldening them, so that the gospel is actually multiplied and advanced through Paul's circumstances. Now, we have to be careful when we're preaching that we don't simply come down and say, be like Paul, or be like Daniel, <laughs> or be like David. Be like David. Um, we should say, be like Christ. But we can say, be like Paul. We need to realize they are examples to us what godliness looks like, especially Paul in this situation. Twice in this epistle, Paul says, imitate me. He tells us that in the epistle because he imitates Christ. And so, yes, I don't mind in this circumstance to say we need to learn a lesson from what we see in the Apostle Paul, who in the midst of his circumstance, he's looking for one thing. How is this going to impact the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? And so he's rejoicing. This epistle is the epistle of joy. Over and over and over again, he exhorts the people in Philippi to rejoice. And at the same time, over and over again, he expresses his joy in the midst of his imprisonment. And why is he overjoyed? Because the gospel is being advanced. It's being advanced because he has, in God's providence, opportunity to preach himself. It's being advanced, why? Because others who see his boldness are emboldened by that, and their preaching, which is multiplying the preaching, in the capital city of Rome itself. And so for these reasons, Paul is rejoicing. But it's also interesting. There's something very interesting that takes place in the text. He talks about this emboldenment in others. Look at what he says in verse 16. 
as we, as we, in verse 14 he says, And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is on the positive end. But there's another side to this too. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. The gospel is being preached, but by two different kinds of individuals. Those who do it out of faith. Those who do it out of love for Christ and love for the beloved apostle. But then there are others who do it for selfish ambition. Their motives are mixed. Their motives are impure. And we know that this is the case. There are people who are ordained ministers of the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ that are unconverted. What's it? Harvard that just appointed as their head chaplain an atheist. Did I see that in the news this week? At Harvard. An atheist appointed as the head of the chaplaincy at Harvard. It's just, it's, it boggles the mind to see this kind of thing. That, of course, an atheist is not even going to be preaching the gospel for, for false motives. But, but there are those that are that are hypocrites, that preach the church. They're those that aren't truly converted, but the gospel they preach is the gospel. Look at what Paul goes on to say. It's really staggering. What then, verse 18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and that I rejoice. Even when they're those who preach from false motives, even when those who are hypocrites who are preaching. Now, now, why is that? Is he rejoicing in the fact that they're hypocrites? Of course not. But the gospel is this powerful. The gospel can be uttered from a man who is unregenerate, and God can convert sinners through it. Sometimes I've run into people before who <clears throat> were baptized, perhaps, by Someone, by a minister who later apostatized <clears throat> and, and showed that they were never a true believer and have wondered, oh, do I need to get baptized again? <laughs> you know, maybe it didn't take <laughs> but because the guy who did it wasn't a believer. No, it's not about whoever does the baptism. It's about God who blesses through the sacrament. Or I came to faith under the preaching of this man who proved himself to be a hypocrite. I came to faith under such a circumstance as that. Um, do I need to go back and consider, am I truly converted because the one who shared the gospel to me or preached the gospel to me proved to be a hypocrite? No. It's the power of the gospel that saves and even for those who preach the gospel out of goodwill, those who are motivated by love and the preaching of the gospel, those who do it earnestly, it's still not about them. It's not, they aren't the one who converts sinners. It's the gospel. It's the spirit accompanying the gospel that's preached. Now, that's not saying that you're going to see the same kind of fruit from an unbeliever in the pulpit than you are from someone who is full of the spirit of God in the preaching of the gospel. 
But the gospel is that important. And um, oftentimes you'll, you'll hear me pray, not only for this church or for other OP churches or even for other no, NAPARC churches and ministers in, 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 in their preaching, but, but for others who would preach things that we wouldn't agree with, but who preach the gospel. Guess what? God converts sinners through those ministries as well. We should be zealous to pray. We might say, but, but you know, their methodologies are unbiblical. And, and maybe they are. But rejoice with every convert <laughs> that the Lord brings to himself through it. The gospel itself is that powerful. And this is something that we need to recognize from this text. The gospel is a sharp two-edged sword. It's sharper than any sword of steel. What can a sword of steel do? It can kill. It can destroy. It can shed blood. What can the sword of the Spirit do? It can make that which is dead alive. That's what the gospel is able to do. And this is why we need to recognize that first and foremost in this church that's planted to assure that what's done from this pulpit, from what's done from house to house is the preaching of this gospel, of preaching the whole counsel of God from this word because that's the only hope for people that are in this community where we live, the mission that we're seeking to target and the way you know the gospel's able to save is it saved you. And you were a dirty, filthy wretch. You're, you're no better than the other people out there that are unconverted in your own right. The gospel's able to save you, and it did. And we need to trust that it's able to save others. If this ministry goes forward. One thing that I find about Paul in this circumstance, just as an example, one convert comes to mind is Onesimus. Now remember Onesimus? He's mentioned in, in one of the epistles, uh, maybe in Colossians, maybe here, I, I, well I can't exactly recall, uh, but, but also the book of, of Philemon is about Onesimus. And Onesimus, we, it's, it's hard to know exactly what happened. We know that he was a slave of, of Philemon in Colossae, where Philemon lived. And Onesimus evidently ran away. He was an unprofitable servant. And yet, Onesimus finds himself in Rome. <laughs> Onesimus finds himself coming under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. How that happened, we don't know. Onesimus is converted. And then Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon. He doesn't tell him to release him from his bondage. He encourages him to do so and to receive him as a friend. Onesimus is one example of many. Beyond that, we see as you come to the end of this epistle, a greeting, an extraordinary greeting. Those of the household of Caesar greet you. <laughs> Think of that. 
those of the household of Caesar greet you. That is, those believers in the household of Caesar greet you. What has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. How did that happen? We're not told. But is it through the imperial guard that come and hear him preach and one's converted and another's converted and they tell others and they're converted and they tell others and it gets to the palace and it gets to some of Nero's own family in the palace and the gospel is being preached. People are hearing it. People are being converted. Nero doesn't know anything about it. But there are those in Caesar's own household that send you greetings, Paul says to the Philippians. What Paul's saying is this. I am not in dire states, straits, as you suppose. Because what's happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And that's all that matters. And would we, in this regard, be like Paul? And see our circumstances by God's providence in the light of how does this, how can God use this to advance the gospel in our lives? So, it's an extraordinary text of what's happening. An extraordinary way, which should not be extraordinary. It should be the way we look at our own lives in light of God's providence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you We thank you for the apostle who told us to emulate him. As we see him emulating you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to go to the cross to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, in order to redeem us. Lord, to teach us to be willing to die to self, to give ourselves to the ministry of the gospel and to your church. Yes, even here in this place where you have us in your providence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's turn to number 460.